news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we've got the authors on the show with us, which is always exciting. We've got Marnie and Carissa who will be discussing their query letters with us. And Marnie is a real trooper. She's in Sydney. It is now 1.30 a.m. So she's had to wake up for this. And I really take my hat off to you, Marnie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It was worth waking up for. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. And I hope you're going to be able to go to sleep afterwards. I know that after these things, I'm generally so wired that it takes me ages to go back to sleep. So hopefully you'll just, you know, be out like a light. Okay, so we're going to begin. Marnie, could you please read us your query letter? Absolutely. Dear Bianca, Carly and Cece, your brilliant podcast accompanies me while I work and nothing makes me happier than Bianca's lovely South African accent introducing a new episode every week. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to present my query in pages. I'm seeking representation for my YA novel, Tiny Stones. Completed 73,000 words, Tiny Stones explores pure O compulsion disorder through the backdrop of first love. Told in first person, Tiny Stones is a love story reminiscent of Five Feet Apart by Mickey Daughtry, with themes similar to Every Last Word by Tamara Arlen Stone and How It Feels to Float by Helena Fox. 17-year-old Dara feels like she's living the wrong life. Her boyfriend Philip is possessive, her best friend's loyalty is questionable, and she is plagued by an endless stream of dark thoughts. 
When a surprising new ally introduces Dara to Kian, recently returned to Ireland from backpacking in Australia, things start looking up. As they fall in love, Dara only presents the best version of herself to Kian, so he is unaware of the crippling thoughts which are threatening to force her into the sea, pockets filled with the gifts he has given her. While Philip continues to pluck away at Dara's self-esteem and her best friend betrays her, Dara clings to Kian for support. Unable to face the trauma of his recently discovered adoption, Kian struggles to be her rock. Dara starts to believe she can escape her life and quell her destructive thoughts by pursuing the utopian Australian lifetime Kian described. But despite promising he would follow Dara to the ends of the earth, he seems reluctant to accompany her there. Dara has to decide whether she can survive in a place she doesn't love, with people she does, or if she can reinvent herself on the other side of the world, alone. A full-time artist, I am Irish-born, but Sydney has been my home for the last 20 years. On any given afternoon, you'll find me in the sunniest corner of my art studio, splashing paint on the canvas, with a book playing in my ears and dogs snoozing at my feet. This is my first novel and is loosely based on personal events. Thank you for your time and consideration. Kind regards, Marnie McKnight. Content warning, full manuscript contains suicidal thoughts, eating disorder references, and off-page sexual assault. Wonderful, Marnie. Thank you. Okay, so firstly, let me say that I've decided that a Irish-Australian accent is now my new favourite accent of all time. Right, that's where we are. And then two, you know, something in that query letter resonated with me. And I love when we even see social commentary coming through that. It's like a guy said he would follow her to the ends of the earth, but he seems reluctant to do that. And it just made me laugh because it's always made me think of men who are like, I would do anything for you. I'd die for you. I'd catch a grenade for you. And you're like, yeah, 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 that's all cool. But could you just pick your socks up, please? So love that. Okay, Carly, let's go to you. What did you think of the query letter? Yes, I just wanted to follow on that for one second. I just watched the adaptation of Grant Grinder's book to film of People We Hate at the Wedding. And there's a scene where, you know, this the man's like, I'm going to come to the wedding with you. And then, of course, he doesn't show up. So anyway, that was a fun adaptation to watch. <laughs> Marnie, thank you for being on the show. We haven't had authors on in a while, and I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm, I'm so happy that you woke up to spend time with us. All right. So I usually just kind of start at the top and and work my way through my notes and then we can kind of we can chat at the end a little bit about it. So I think overall, like it's a very literary query. It's very literary pitch, right? We're focusing a lot on, you know, the words and the atmosphere. And I think what was missing for me was actually the setting and the reality and, you know, the time periods. When we get to the pages, we can talk about that. But this felt very like ethereal to me. And I just wanted it like grounded a little bit more. So I wanted to know a bit more information about like, is there a school vibe to this? Is there like a job that she has, right? It was very much like just on a journey with her friends, which just made made it feel otherworldly a bit to me. And I really just needed like a grounding sense of place because we obviously we mentioned the Ireland and the Australia which is a bit just still loose right we don't even know what city in Ireland we don't even know what what city in Australia right so it's just very kind of loose in our minds which sometimes that's intentional right because there's that's a vibe choice that you're making but I just want to let you know how it comes off because it's just coming off a little bit ethereal to me when I just wanted it a little bit more grounded okay and then just starting at the top here so in terms of the pure o compulsion disorder so sometimes when we're talking about something that's so specific I always just wonder I'm like do we need more information to understand this because I googled it because I was like I don't know what that is and learned it's like a form of OCD and, and that was information that I needed to know perhaps so I don't know if maybe you could say like a form of OCD I don't want to take away the value of like being specific here by any means but I also just want to think about readability and and how we can share information in a way that is just as clear as possible especially off the jump so that was a note there all right so okay I'm going to move to the section about kind of the the love triangle element here so I wondered a little bit about 
whenever we're talking about literary fiction, we're talking about stakes and why things matter, right? Because we know with the literary book, it's all about word choice and, and language and atmosphere and vibes. But in a query letter, we kind of need to know what happens. So I wanted to know a little bit, like, is she in love with Philip? Because she says, like, he's her boyfriend. But right away, you know, Kean is the draw here and is the focus. So why can't she break it off with Philip? per se like what is it about him that is kind of getting in the way and obviously this probably has something more to do with her and maybe you know insecurities and being a teenage girl and things like that but I would just love to know about that because I almost forgot about him because then we got to the point where it's like as they fall in love Dara only presents the best version of herself right and so I totally forgot about Philip I was like oh okay he's a boyfriend that's just like hovering around and sometimes with teenage girls it's like yeah I'm a boyfriend that's just like out there whatever but you know when we're in a love triangle we need to know how everybody is interacting in this love triangle and in for me, it also seemed like Kian had more external pressures and external conflicts than Dara did. So then I'm like, why is Dara the main character here? You know what I mean? Like from a big picture perspective. So I just need to know like why her, right? Like what are the roadblocks for her and what's going on with this love triangle? So that was kind of important to me. So yeah, I think the sense of place was missing for me because even though you're talking about really interesting places, I just didn't get the sense of place on the page. That would have been something that I would really encourage you to focus on. So those are my main notes. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Marnie, this is your turn to give us information or ask questions or anything like that. Okay, well, thank you so much for that. That was really fantastic. And yeah, this is just such a treat to talk it through. So yay. So I see where you're going with the time and place thing. I was trying to make it kind of short, but I felt the same. I kind of felt like it might be a little bit vague with where it was setting. And because I was trying to go for slightly more literary, I thought I would leave it a little bit like that but I'm very happy to pop it in and make it a little bit more specific there and then with the love triangle and this is probably not clear now that I've read it back through to you is that Philip has coercive control over Dara so when she breaks up with him he still infiltrates her life for really three quarters of the book he still keeps popping up and popping up and he's the one who pulls her best friend away from her as well and starts to manipulate her life in that way which makes her obviously very uncomfortable or whatever and that's kind of her external pressure is him pressuring her the whole time to go back but I see what you mean that in a way Kian could almost be the um he has kind of more interesting storyline in that way yeah yeah Potentially, potentially. Yeah, yeah. I think I would spell out, yeah, all of that course of control bit because I think that is what kind of gives the love triangle its tension. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see that. Okay, cool. Thank you for that. The other thing that I was wondering is that there's a kind of ticking clock in the query. And the idea is that I think in, in a certain part of the book, then she's kind of makes up her mind that she's going to leave. And so she books her ticket and doesn't tell anybody. Should that be mentioned as well so that there is a time frame there too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would definitely I love a ticking time clock, especially in literary fiction, right? Because that's just something that you could do a tool, right, to like create tension in a way where you're still able to explore all those literary skills. But again, something to count down towards. And a really great tip if you are doing the ticking time clock is have her book her flight. And then when you get close to that, have her move it up. And that's a nice way to like create tension in the third act. Okay, sure. I like that. That's really good. Thank you. A question from me, Moni. So is this single POV? You haven't thought yes. about including the other characters POV who Carly is so interested in? I actually did. And I started with it, but then I felt like it was getting too long. Well, this is another part of what I wanted to ask you guys. So it is YA. I wrote it as a YA. I started adding Kean as an alternative point of view, but then I felt like, yeah, it was going to be too long for a YA novel. 
now I'm kind of at the point that I'm that the story kind of would hold up if they were adults as well. So am I kind of limiting myself, leaving it in YA, keeping it shorter, and then only aiming it towards the younger audience? Because I feel like the story could be manipulated, or it doesn't need to be manipulated. The characters just need to kind of grow up a little bit, and I'm in charge of that. So should I do that? I think that's a really interesting question and just speaks to so many like more market things that we can talk about. To me, it always just comes back to intention, right? Like what is your intention for the story and what is the what is the story trying to be? I'm a big proponent of like letting the story speak to us and it's its job to tell us what it wants to be. And, and we deliver that as we kind of move through edits and, and figure it out. So yeah, I think this is tricky because she's 17, I believe, right? So I don't know how far into, you know, how many years this book covers, but really it, it has to be YA unless we are actually covering them as adults looking back even or when they're interacting as adults so to me it kind of has to be YA literary but you know there would require some work in terms of like recasting it into more of a coming of age adult POV type of story so I like it as YA personally okay great okay I like that too how much time does it cover Moni It, it only covers a year yeah, which th- that's good. Hey, Kalia, takes them to 18. Yeah, no, that makes perfect, perfect sense. I just love how you've kind of these characters live in your head as like, you know, as full fleshed human beings. So a lot of people create characters and they can't imagine them as adults. So I love I love that you thought about that. Okay, if you don't have any more questions, Marnie, will you give us an overview of what's in those opening pages? Sure, of course. All right, we meet 17-year-old Dara in a park in Dublin with a couple of friends. It's summertime and they're drinking vodka mixed with Coke in preparation for a party later that night. Dara is feeling like she doesn't quite know where she fits in with her childhood friend Tamron or her new friend Suzanne. Suzanne's brother arrives, followed by his friend Kian. The other girls have an instant easy rapport with the boys, but Dara is awkward and flustered. We already know Dara has a boyfriend, but she's obviously immediately attracted to Kian. However, her behavior with him is uncomfortable and stilted, and he's much the same. And there the pages end. Wonderful. Okay, Carly, what was your take on them? All right. So the first thing I wanted to say was, this was incredibly cinematic, which is sometimes really challenging for literary fiction because you describe like everything they do, right? It was like what they're wearing, what they're touching, brushing something off their leg. I don't know. I felt very immersed in scene. So I thought that was really, really well done. So I I very much enjoyed that element of like specificity. I thought that was great. Okay. So some more specific notes here. Dublin, 1997. So I don't think in the query you mention the year. And so I would try to figure out, and we could obviously have a conversation about like historical, right? Like at this point in our history, we're in the year 2023. This kind of is historical, right? It is a different time and place. There were different social rules. There were different trends. There was a different vibe. To me, this is historical fiction. So you might want to think about how you want to describe your book and in the pitch letter, you might want to describe it as historical fiction. I mean, the 90s are historical. So again, I'm open to debate and I'll debate anybody on the internet about this, but I think 90s is historical fiction at this point. So that's something something to think about. Another thing is you always have to be able to back up why you chose this year. And so is it because you didn't want them to have cell phones? Is it because this is loosely based on, you know, some personal history, right? I think you mentioned that in the query. So not, yeah, I mean, you can defend it to me if you want to, but I just mean like in the grand scheme of things, like an editor might ask, why does it need to be 1997, right? And you just, you need to have an answer to that. The other thing, a very small, small thing is that you talk about Britney Spears and her first album didn't come out till 1999. And this book takes place in 97. So any Britney Spears files will know that potentially maybe 
that isn't the right reference. So I just wanted to, as a Britney Spears aficionado and I've seen her in concert, I just wanted to mention that. Okay, so I have some notes about some small things because remember I talked about how like you describe everybody's body and what they're doing at any given point. So you'll notice in my notes, I do have some like, is that what would have happened there, that sort of thing. So you'll notice you'll notice some questions about that. One thing I don't think was clear, which you seem to think was clear because that's the way that you described it to me right now is her status in the group. I didn't feel like that was clear. I wrote like, you know, she feels like an outsider, but then it's her fake ID that got them the vodka. So then I'm like, well, she is kind of a you know bad kid or whatever. She has a fake ID, but it just didn't seem like as clear to me as it is to you about like what her status is. I think I also have some notes for you about like when I think the writing is good, but not necessarily like YA level. Do you know what I mean? So I have some notes for you in there. Just something to think about. Like, is that the way that a teen would have thought about that? Another thing I couldn't figure out was like why they're drinking, like motivation, right? We're always thinking about motivation. What are these characters doing? Is it boredom? That's kind of the vibe I got. They're just kind of bored teenagers and suburbia and just kind of need something to do. I would spell that out a little bit about motivation just because that like lackadaisical, you know, teens just being teens, kids in the 90s thing. I don't know. I just needed I needed a little bit of motivation still, like drinking because they're bored and want to belong, like that kind of thing. I just wasn't clear on on all of that. But those I think are the main things. Oh, and then why is she attracted to Kian. So I think you have this as like a love at first sight thing, but I'm not really sure why, because, you know, not that like looks have everything to do with it, but with love at first sight, like a little bit of like that instant chemistry has to do with being attracted to the person. And she talks about, you know, what he's wearing and how it's a little bit misshapen, his shirt and things like that. So I couldn't figure out as a reader what about this was love at first sight, other than the fact that you were telling me it was love at first sight. So I, I think I just need that infused into the actual interaction and chemistry of them a little bit more. I, I would enjoy that. But, you know, I think there's just so many beautiful lines here. Like, I, I really like this line. The way Tamron made a big fuss of Philip sometimes made me question whether she liked him more than I did. But she moved through boys like a bowling ball, knocking them senseless. So I, you know, I think you're a beautiful writer. I think you're a great writer. And I think, you know, there's a little bit of finding our way, but it's, it's good. High praise indeed. Okay, so before we go back to Marnie, I have a question for you, Carly. Is historical YA a category? Does it have to be one or the other? Could it be a subcategory of YA or what do you think? Yeah, so the way that I envision things is that YA is an age range, right? An adult is an age range. And therefore, we can have all of these brackets under that. So like YA fantasy, YA historical, YA contemporary, just like we would, you know, with adult fiction. So those are kind of the umbrellas in the way that I think about it. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, Marnie, over to you. Oh, well, thank you for that. That's fantastic feedback. It's given me a lot to talk about and think about for sure. All right, so I'll try and remember what there was. But first of all, it's it's amazing hearing people from the outside because I have my, my only beta readers have been my daughters so far. So we've been able to talk it through and I've been able to kind of hone it a little bit with them, but it's about to go out to some other beta readers. So it'll be interesting to see their feedback too. So Dara's position in the group, to me, she feels it like she's an outsider. However, you work out eventually that the other two think that she's kind of the cool one because she has the fake ID and she has all those things and she's pretty and understated and whatever. And she's got the cool boyfriend and stuff, but actually she's the one that's actually racked with insecurities and that's her stance within the group. And that's part of her arc as well, that she realizes who she is and how people see her from the outside. And then this was a question actually for you guys as well, was the the way that, yeah, some of my lines are quite literary and they sound a little bit adult. And I was kind of, because I put it in the past tense as well, I was kind of thinking of, she's thinking back at a future time because the very final chapter will be 
forwards in the future and she's thinking back to it and that's why I'm kind of like prep you know by Curtis Sittenfeld or whatever that there's that little distance between when it happens but you're still close enough that you still have those feelings that was kind of the aim I was going for with that yeah I think that's a really interesting question right because that affects so much right because as soon as we move from YA to coming of age we're moving from YA to adult right we're jumping categories and so when we create that sense of distance that sense of looking back really that's when it becomes coming of age and when you use something with an adult lens even when it is you know things that are happening in in adolescence you are kind of targeting a adult audience and then the nostalgia of this book again with the 90s like that's why it it wants to pull it wants to pull itself into coming it wants to pull itself to the borders which is why I talk about like letting the manuscript speak to us right so I think you have to think about what you want to do and you have to pull it back into the place because it's 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 wandering a little bit yeah I, I do agree with that <laughs> Just something there to think about is remember when you write in first person, you have to adopt the narrative voice of that character and needs to fit their level of education, their wisdom level, their life experience, etc, etc. And sometimes you as the author, if you were author as narrator in the third person, you could be much more literary than what that character could be right? And so you could develop the story in in much different ways because it's you as author's narrative voice. Whereas the minute you make it first person POV, it has to sound like that character. Even if like you say, it's a few years later, it still has to be consistent with that character. So if you really want to lean in to being the more literary and contemplative kind of voice, you might want to consider third person for that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't considered that, but it's true. All right, so then the next thing was, oh, the vibe at the beginning, the drinking, was kind of more of a vibe thing. It was trying to get the vibe before they go to a party that she's feeling kind of a bit all over the place. But you're right with the Kian and why she falls in love with him. But love at first sight, I hadn't thought of that. It was just kind of going on description-wise and, you know, having kind of a, I guess, chemical connection or whatever, but you can't really just have that in the book. There has to be a, a kind of a deeper thing, so... That's definitely something for me to work on. Thank you. It could just be a common bond. Like there's so many things. I think you might need to study this a little bit about how other people do this or, or yeah, do a little bit more research because a lot of it is just like common bond, shared interest. Uh, something happens in the moment and they both react the same way, right? Like what is it about them that's like they're driving their cars in the same direction, you know, something that feels otherworldly that like they're meant to be together. Yeah, I like that. That's really good. I'll definitely work on that. I think that was definitely one of the weakest things in there. I felt like with the pages, I did look at them so much that, you know, I've over kind of done them and some of the magic has come out of them as well. So having not looked at them for a few weeks until just, you know, leading up to this, I did kind of go, ooh, I can, (laughs) I can definitely spot some things there myself that I, I could easily and add a little bit more I guess a bit more yeah specificity into it and everything but I think the last thing that we talked about was the 90s and the the reason why I did pick the 90s semi because that was the last time I lived in Ireland but it was more so because of what Ireland was like back then it was kind of it was a lot less cosmopolitan than it is now there was absolutely zero talk of mental health or mental illness back then. So if you did have some sort of a mental health problem, you just lived with it or died with it. And, you know, that was the end. And so there was no talk of that. So that was kind of part of the story is her being trapped, not being able to tell anybody because it's just not socially acceptable back in, in the 90s to tell anybody. And then you kind of start drowning in your own thoughts. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what makes it historical, right? Yeah. That's kind of what I was getting at, right? It's like, what is it that's specific about that time and place? And if it earns it, then it earns it. So you, that's good. You lean into that. I like that it's historical. I think that's cool. <laughs> Something I'd just like to add, Marnie, and it's for our listeners in general, is that it's so important from the first page to have the reader imagining the scene exactly as you, the writer, are imagining the scene, which means setting's important. It can't be that a conversation is happening in this vacuum. If if it's happening in a park, you want the reader to be imagining it in a park. But what a lot of authors make the mistake of doing is they then give us a paragraph setting the scene, and then they go into the scene itself of these teenagers speaking. And that's often boring. It doesn't grab the reader. So I just want to point out something that you've done here. So you have these teenagers speaking for the whole of the first page, and then, then at the bottom of the first page you have the park was busy today. Sparks of laughter carried on the air from the cluster of middle-aged mothers sitting cross-legged on the grass, skirts pushed above their knees, surrounded by a phalanx of buggies thwarting their toddler's dash for freedom. Alone, Jack Russell lifted his leg against a shrub before shying away from a cartel of crisp wrappers and trotting off. And then there's something about primary age school boys. So all of that's very evocative, but by the time I got there, I hadn't been imagining them in a park. So then I had to have a reset as to what I was imagining. Now, instead of moving that paragraph up to the top and beginning with that, what you can do is you can set the scene in action beats. So instead of, you know, he said, she said, you have the character saying something and then she shoots a dirty look at the middle-aged mothers who are glaring at us for being too loud in the park, right? So a line like that, boom, puts us in the setting. We know they're in a park. We know there's middle-aged mothers and they are reacting to their environment in a way that makes it very clear to us as the reader where they are and what's going on. So try as writers to take your scene setting, split it up into chunks and use that as action beats as opposed to just having one chunk of scene setting sort of later on the page, if that makes sense. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's really good. Really good tip. Yeah, so take that whole paragraph, which was amazing, it was so well written, put it up into bits and pieces and go, where can I work that in into the dialogue early on so that it's clear that these teenagers are reacting to this environment as their environment reacts to them. Okay, well, Marnie, it was so wonderful chatting to you. I think it's now 2 a.m. in Sydney, so please go and get some sleep. Lovely seeing Thanks, you. Thanks, Marnie. Bye. Okay, so now we are joined by Carissa. Carissa, welcome to the show. Could you read us your query letter? Ms. Lyra and Ms. Waters, I'm seeking representation for my novel, Recovery Mode, 91,000 word literary fiction about what happens when a woman starts getting texts from her late sister's number a year after losing her to a heroin overdose. A tragic comic investigation into addiction and the recovery of what's been lost with the deadpan voice and dark humor of luster and want and an exploration of grief, faith, and heritability that will appeal to fans of Transcendent Kingdom the novel would be in good company with the titles on Goodreads' Women vs. the Void list. Chiara Bruno is 25, a lapsed Catholic living in Milwaukee, who still texts her dead sister, Elena, every day. But one day, she gets a response from a stranger. By day, Chiara pens financial advice for a women's website on the brink of layoffs. By night, she spends her rent money on impulse purchases from targeted Instagram ads, bums cigarettes from the neighborhood street lamp people, and rejects calls from her best friend, Rachel, who keeps pushing Al-Anon. The gulf between Chiara and her devout Catholic Italian immigrant parents widens, and she can't stop texting the person who inherited Elena's old number. 
When she finds out about an essay contest with a prize large enough to pull her from her sister's orbit, Chiara embarks upon a quest, for the sake of the essay, to rediscover the peace she once found in the church. As she searches, the power of small walkie aligns Chiara's path with the mysterious stranger in unexpected ways, and the two begin to form an unlikely friendship that sends Chiara on a journey to recover what she has lost in family, faith, community, and purpose. I completed my MA in creative writing in 2019 at Redacted, where I also served as an assistant fiction editor for Redacted and studied under the guidance of author Redacted, who called recovery mode polished moving wise. My debut story, Escape Velocity, won second place in the Master's Review's New Voices contest in 2020 and was the 2019 recipient of the Redacted Award for Best Graduate Student Short Story. In 2015, I was accepted to the Sarah Lawrence Summer Seminar for Writers, where I studied with Adele Waldman. I previously worked as an editor for Redacted Magazine and wrote for Redacted Magazine. I currently live in Sacramento and work as an editor for Redacted. Below is a sample of my manuscript. Thank you for your consideration, Carissa. Wonderful, Carissa. Thank you so much. Okay, Cece, we're going to hand it across to you. Yay, Carissa. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always so much fun to have authors on the show. Okay, I want to start by saying that framing this as a novel that would be in good company with the titles on Goodreads, Women versus the Void is such a fun, easy to understand, brilliant way of framing this, right? Like, I love it. It's it's just great. I'd never seen it in a query letter before, and I, I adored it. Notes. I think I'd find a way to include the number of years that it's been since she passed. Unless you're intentionally trying to keep that from us, I feel like, you know, I know it's a number of years, but like, are we talking two? Are we talking 10? It really matters. Having read the pages, I know. But as I was reading the query letter, I actually don't know the number of years, but I do know how old she was when she passed away. But I guess as I was reading the query letter, I was wondering, well, are we talking about someone who lost her sister when they were both seven and now she's, you know, 25? Or are we talking about someone who lost her sister three years ago? And, you know, losing a sibling is losing a sibling. I know what that feels like. It's incredibly traumatic and it, it's always traumatic no matter the age, but it matters for the interiority. So I would... I would definitely specify that unless there's a reason why you, you don't want to, which, which case we can talk about it. And then in terms of the hook, so I like the hook. I would make it even stronger by connecting the plot points between her professional quest and the texts she's getting. So right now, all we have is aligns Kiara's path with the mysterious stranger in unexpected ways. Like, I feel like this is something you can get more specific about. Imagine, have you ever watched that movie, is it You've Got Mail, the Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan one where they like she owns an independent bookstore and he is like the heir of a big box bookstore. Now imagine if if in that movie they didn't mention that they were business rivals in real life. Instead, the pitch for that movie said their paths align. You wouldn't it wouldn't be as compelling, right? Because the reason why their paths align in real life versus via the texts in your case, it matters. That reason matters. So I, I'm a big believer that readers need specifics to be curious. So I would just specify that. And maybe you could tell me a little bit about what that would look like so that we can see if that's obviously not a spoiler, but I don't think it is because it feels like something that's a part of the story setup. And I also want to say to wrap this up, wowza, very impressive author paragraph. I know you kept reading redacted and redacted, but it's just like you have so many accomplishments. So that's absolutely incredible. Congratulations. Thank you very much. 
So Carissa, this is where you get to ask me questions about my notes on the query letter, or if you have, if anything I said wasn't clear, or if you're all good, we can move on to the pages. It's up to you. Sure. You've given me a lot to think about. I think I might, you've given me ideas for how to actually make the plot stronger so that the query can be stronger, I think. So that might be something that goes beyond the scope of this podcast. So I appreciate that. I think the number of years she's been without her sister is a good point. She it's, it's less than a year at the beginning. And then she hits the first anniversary within the story, which is why I excluded that. But I think maybe I could just say like about a year or almost a year or something. Okay. So great to know. I would actually, so given that timeline, I would say that it's even more important to include that because her grief is so fresh, right? So, and that obviously makes sense now that I think about it. And I should have picked up on this earlier. She's texting her sister. So obviously it wasn't too many years ago. Someone would have picked up the number by now. So yes, please specify the number. Very important. Carissa, do you have any more comments that you'd like to make? Or are you ready to move on to pages? I guess my main, my main reason for being here is that I have been querying and this is not my first rodeo, but I have not been getting anywhere near the response that I was with previous projects. And so, and I thought the hook was pretty strong on this one. So I thought maybe it was the query letter not doing its job. So if there's, if, if you have any more guidance about like what, if, is anything getting lost or buried or could anything just be sharpened to get anyone's attention a little bit faster? I think it would be exactly the note I gave you about connecting the plot point between her professional quest and her texting relationship with this stranger. It might be why you're not getting traction. Obviously, I don't know because it depends on each agent. But I have noticed that when the plot points in the story feels like satellites orbiting each other, as opposed to, you know, something that's very, very tightly connected, the, the former gets less response than the latter. So that might be something to think about. Thank you. Okay, Carissa, will you give our listeners an indication of what's in those opening pages before we get Cece's take on them? Sure. So it starts with what you will probably refer to as an unlabeled prologue. <laughs> it is in Kiara's head around the time of her sister's death. She's kind of ruminating on a lot of the language that's in like uh, condolence cards that her family's getting. And she's kind of already starting to associate and, and talk to Google instead of people. She's kind of Googling things and asking about the afterlife as if Google was a priest or something. And then we see a little bit of the funeral and we learn a little bit about her sister's personality and her cause of death and her kind of relationship, both sisters' relationship with heroin and with the church. After that, we jump into the real chapter one, which is Kiara is on her way to her friend Rachel's house for dinner. It turns out to be a surprise birthday party for her and all of her friends and coworkers are there. And she's kind of, she's surprised, but not really in a good way. And she's still kind of has trouble with social situations after her sister's death. And so she's been texting her sister throughout the party to just kind of have her there with her during the party. And that's where it ends. Wonderful, Carissa. Thank you. I am going to be really interested to hear what Cece says, because we've said before on the podcast how difficult it is to start with a funeral, that it's really, really tough because you've, you know, you've got grief, you've got mourning, and none of these are active emotions. But, you know, she's thinking about a lot. So I'm wondering if that has kind of balanced out the thing where we say don't begin with a funeral. Okay, Cece, what's your take? Before I share my take, I have a question for Carissa. 
Would you like me to start with the good or the bad? Uh, Start with the bad. Okay. So the sneaky prologue, because yes, that is what it is. It's a sneaky prologue. It took me two reads to figure out where they were. Because while it's true that towards the end, and I highlighted the sections that had setting, specific setting, not a reference to setting in her memory, but rather the setting in which they are. It's true that there are references to a funeral. There are also references to other settings in her memory. It's so stream of consciousness that I was so confused. I kept like highlighting parts and going, is this where they are? No. Okay. They're not here. Okay. So, so are they already in the post-funeral reception with the with the dishes because they do t- we do talk about the food okay no they're not they're still at the church okay so are they here and i'm a big big believer that especially at the start of a novel you have to set us in scene like you have to immerse us in scene it's it's definitely something that's like non-negotiable in order to get me to be sucked into a story that being said literary fiction does allow for an untethered quality So if that's your intention, by all means, your story, right? Like I'm one reader. I do think that you can keep the beautiful immersive language. Oh no, I'm getting into the good part. Never mind. You can keep the language um, and and still immerse us in scene. Like you can keep all the stuff that's strong about this and just do a more clear job of setting the scene, of ensuring that we know where we are, who's around her, all the specifics and the, you know, bolts that go into creating a scene. So Second thing is that you kept slipping into, or between, I should say, present tense and past tense. And I did highlight those those occasions for you. And I think it's a mistake. I don't think it's intentional. Of course, if it is, again, your story. But I liked the immediacy of the present tense when we were in it. So I would very much recommend keeping it in the present tense. Whatever you choose, though, I would recommend consistency. I assume there might actually be a reason for the the switch. I don't think it's just a plain mistake. I think that you're just being very clear about like, oh, she was thinking about that at that certain moment, but now she is thinking about something else. But I would do away with it. I think it's really important to, to just choose one verb tense. And then as a very minor, minor note, there were many references, many, there were two references references to my family in the protagonist's interiority. And yet she's thinking about her sister all the time. So I wonder if she wouldn't think our family. Like I think it would just be more realistic for her to think our family. And I did mark these moments for you, unless it's like intentional, but she would have wanted her death to be a relief valve on my family's big secret, our family, right? Like not my family. Anyway, very minor note, but I definitely think that that would lend more authenticity to the interiority. Now, Now for the good stuff. Okay, there's a lot of good stuff. First of all, chapter one is fantastic. Like I knew exactly, yes, all the nuts and bolts of scene. It was very specific and very clear, but also her interiority. I am such a pain when it comes to interiority. I always have interiority notes, always. I had none here other than good job, brava, spectacular, amazing, perfection especially leaving things unsaid in dialogue. Oftentimes when characters are talking, especially writers who are good at writing dialogue, you know, usually these people who have like some experience with, with screenwriting and stuff, all they do is write excellent dialogue, but they forget that dialogue has to also have a little sprinkle of interiority so that the reader can have access to the stuff that nobody else has. None of the other characters, which is what's going on through the protagonist's psyche. And 
you had so many moments where she was arranging her face. Also big things about her, like pretending to be like happily surprised as opposed to, you know, not, not so happily surprised. It was so good. So, so good. Like, I think this is the strongest chapter in terms of interiority on the podcast that I've ever read. Like it is just incredibly, incredibly good. Amazing job. Brava. I also want to point out there was some fantastic details throughout, including the sneaky prologue, including the chapter one, things like her, her needing her sister to be older than her. And she was wondering like, wait, if she died when she was 26, does that mean that I'll get older? And I'll like, that is so realistic. That's so authentic. That's exactly what goes on through the head of someone who just lost a sibling. The comment about the boring side of addiction. Like that was so, such a fresh take on addiction. It, it, it was almost inappropriate, but it also makes sense that she'd be thinking something so inappropriate because she's going through all these emotions. The comment about the piece of the grief pie in chapter one, like I kept highlighting and you'll get to see all my notes, but just the level of detail and, and specificity in her thoughts. It was just absolutely spectacular. I, I really loved it. As a general note, I'll wrap this up by saying, in my opinion, I would either start with chapter one because it's so fantastic or immerse us in scene in the prologue because to answer Bianca's specific question, yeah, it's a funeral, but the emotionality wasn't a problem at all, at all, at all, at all. Like you write interiority so well that I was totally fine. The issue in chapter one was rather the lack of like being immersed in a clear scene. What was going on? What was the stuff that a camera could capture as opposed to the stuff that only, you know, what authors do, which is creating interiority could capture. So yeah, I think that I, one or the other, that's that's my big picture note for you. And thank you so much for sharing this. I'm so eager to answer any questions you might have. Thank you, Cece. Before we go back to Carissa, I just want to say again, and, and these were the things that linked our two submissions today, really beautiful writing again, but like that lack of immersing us in scene. And as a writer who used to do this, I feel your pain. I, For me, scene I could picture the scene in my head, but like I never described it. And so it's something I've had to work really hard on. But, you know, it really isn't a big overhaul because I'm looking at your pages here and on page three of this sneaky prologue, at the bottom of page three, it says the dirge comes to a merciful conclusion. Someone coughs in the back of the church. Dust motes dance in the light, haloing the speaker system installed in the ceiling vaults. Kiara, I want to go back up there. So really that's just like moving that up to the first line. And remember that was stream of consciousness. We interact with our environment, even when we thinking and our thoughts are somewhere else that you'll spot something like a dust mote, which makes you think of something or someone will walk past and touch your shoulder and that'll interrupt your thoughts and that'll send your thoughts off in a different direction. So if you can have her stream of consciousness interacting with the environment, I really think that you can elevate that and, and make that come alive. Okay, we're handing across to Carissa now. Thank you both for your feedback. First of all, that was really great to hear. And you've once again, given me some great ideas for where to revise right away. So thank you. My main question coming on this podcast was like, should I start with chapter one? Chapter one was originally chapter one. And then I got a little bit nervous because I'm trying to pitch this as literary. There is some more experimental prose throughout. And I didn't want it to come across as something that it wasn't in the, I, I guess in my mind, like starting with a scene is more of a commercial thing, which that might be false. I'm not an agent. In my mind, it is like, it, it felt like 
could I start with something a little bit more interior or a little bit more, I don't know, like kind of previewing the the themes of the book a little bit instead of just showing her interacting. So I like the idea of still starting with the prologue, the sneaky prologue, but turning it into a scene. But I also could revert to what it was originally, which was just the first scene is the first chapter. And the the one thing there too is, unfortunately, with a five-page sample, which I know a lot of agents are asking for too, you don't get the, the, the stranger who responds to her text message. And I'm not sure if that would come in the first five pages, even if I cut the prologue, but it would be at least closer. So um, as the inciting incident, I know we want that to be as close as possible. So I'm just kind of like rambling now and not actually asking you a question. But if you have any, yeah, if you, if you would like to jump in, I'll mute myself. I love your thoughts on this because you're thinking like a writer who is seeking to be traditionally published, right? Like this is, this is part of what a writer who has that goal needs to do. So starting with the scene being more commercial, perhaps, I'm honestly not going to get into the discussion because it's too, there's too many variables, but I will say this, I get that this is literary fiction, but true or false, Carissa? Even if this is literary fiction, which it is, do you want your literary fiction to have commercial appeal as well? Like, do you want to be read by book clubs all over the country? Do you want the masses to also love your book? Much in the way that literary fiction that does really well, like that same appeal, do you want that? I think the answer is yes. So why not start with the scene anyway? You can keep the stream of consciousness. I am by no means suggesting that you cut that. Please keep that because it's so good. I kept complimenting the detail, the specificity, the interiority, the emotionality, but add, add the scene, right? Like sprinkle that in, in a way that is tight and clear. That way I'm not wondering about any of the nuts and bolts. I'm only wondering about you know, specific questions about her journey. That way I'm focusing on character and not on confusion. That's essentially what I want. And then to your point about, well, because it's only five pages, the stranger doesn't come in. I don't want the stranger to come in yet. Like that, I did not need more tension. You will notice that I in no moment said, nor did I write in your pages, which I know you haven't gotten yet. I need more tension. No, there's great tension here. You started a scene with a funeral and a character grieving, and I am saying there's tension. Never in my life have I said this, ever, ever. So you did a fantastic job. You don't have to worry about the disruption. Like, you just you just don't. Your writing is strong enough, your character is interesting enough that I am invested. What I did need was the scene, because otherwise I am reading a diary. And I don't want to read a diary. I want to read a story. Can I just jump in there? Because I, I kind of want to dispel this myth that literary fiction does not allow for scene. Because, so, and I'm going to quote from this because I'm actually interviewing this author today. I'm interviewing Dipti Kapoor, Age of Vice. It is the biggest buzz book of the early part of this year. It is very literary. It's a literary thriller. And I want to read you the opening few paragraphs, right? Five pavement dwellers lie dead at the side of Delhi's inner ring road. It sounds like the start of a sick joke. If it is, no one told them. They die where they slept, almost. Their bodies have been dragged 10 meters by the speeding Mercedes that jumped the curb and cut them down. It's February, 3 a.m., 6 degrees. 15 million souls curl up in sleep. A pale fog of sulfur lines the streets. That is a scene. 
mofos. That is a scene. And it is literary as heck. So let's not, you know, say, okay, it's literary, it can't be a scene. Okay, back to you, Carissa. Thank you, Bianca. And that is a great point. And thank you for reading that because I understand completely now what you are both trying to say. So I think I might actually try to, to keep the prologue, but turn it into not a prologue and not sneaky anymore. So just a more general question about like literary fiction and, you know, plot is obviously very important for the query, but also just in general. Do you have more general, because I know you, you haven't read my whole manuscript or my synopsis, but so for a more general, like the whole podcast audience, do you have general rules of thumb for getting more of that plot into the, into the query letter when it might be more of an interior, like her journey is more of a interior discovery about faith and about community and all the stuff that the themes kind of hit on. But I'm afraid that like, like the plot, the real plot paragraph I have, which wasn't even originally in the query was about the essay contest that she starts working towards, which doesn't seem like it's not like a very active thing to be, you know, trying to win an essay contest. So I was just wondering if you had thoughts on that few things on that. It's a great question. One, when I get a query for literary fiction, yes, I care that there's plot and it's very important that the book have plot, but truly the first thing I do is scroll down and see if the person can write. Like I don't I don't mean to be callous here, but literary fiction, all, any novel I will care if the person can write, but literary fiction, like if I am not moved by your writing, then then it's not for me. So so that's 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 a me thing. I do not read synopses. I hate synopses. I ask for them so our interns can have them and so like eventual film tv people and stuff like that can have them i hate synopses i'm actually allergic to them because i believe in reading organically and i you know maybe in 10 years i'll, I'll think differently but for now that's that's where i am i think that my best advice is for you to first of all you have a synopsis i'm assuming so you have your plot points mapped out so i would Read other literary fiction. You've probably already read tons of literary fiction. So just select your favorite literary fiction novels and then go to the pitch copy of those books, right? Like it's the back of the book or maybe in the jacket flap. I don't know. It depends on the book. Go to Goodreads, read the synopsis, not synopsis, but read the pitch copy there and see how they did it. Because that kind of skill, the skill of packaging commercial plot points into a literary novel in like 400 words or less is is hard. And honestly, the best way is to just see how others did it. I would look at a book called Notes on Your Sudden Disappearance by Alison Espatch. It's a book that Bianca recommended to me. It is beautiful. It shares many of the themes of your book. It's also someone, a sister who lost another sister, and it's just absolutely spectacular. Yeah, that's what I would do. I would, in order to, because it's a big question, right? Like, how do I weave in my plot points in a query letter? And, and when it's literary fiction, go look at how the, the publicists, the wonderful, talented, intelligent publicists did it. Awesome. Thank you. And then last, real quick, last question. Did you think that my, I had too many comps? I know you commented on the, the use of the Goodreads list, which was my way of getting like a hundred other comps in there. But do you think, I also called out three specific titles. Did you have any feedback on that? The three titles didn't bother me. It's true that we often say, you know, try to keep it to two comps, but it's three. It's just one more. It just wasn't a problem. While it's really important to nail those comps, I think that giving me the positioning of the book in the way that you did, did work better with three titles. So I'm, I think it's fine to keep. Awesome. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you for joining us, Carissa. It was lovely chatting with you. Thank you, Carly and Cece, as always, for your incredible insight. Let's go to today's guest.
my youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're gonna have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest grew up in northern India and worked for several years as a journalist in New Delhi. The author of the novel Bad Character, she now lives in Portugal with her husband. It's my pleasure to welcome Dipti Kapoor. Dipti, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a real pleasure to be here. So wonderful to speak to you, Dipti. I just want to say for our listeners, Age of Vice has made such a huge splash. If you haven't heard about it, you're living under a rock. 
<laughs> I have been hearing the buzz about this book since before August. So for our listeners, this is how buzz builds up for a book. It's not something that happens the week before a book comes out. It is a machine that builds and builds and builds. And then you get these kinds of results. An instant New York Times bestseller, a Good Morning America book club pick. So I just want to give you some blurb copy for our listeners so they know what we're talking about from the publisher it says deftly shifting between time and perspective in contemporary india age of vice is an epic action-packed story propelled by the seductive wealth startling corruption and bloodthirsty violence of the wadia family loved by some loathed by others feared by all now for those of you who belong to book clubs get this book. There is so much to break down in terms of book club discussions. But remember, we are not a book club podcast. We're a writing podcast. So we're getting into the nuts and bolts of the writing. Now, the story begins with what is essentially a flash forward prologue in 2004, in which we see a Mercedes has plowed into five pavement dwellers, killing them. 22-year-old AJ is the driver. He appears drunk. They speculate that he took his boss's car, the Mercedes, for a joyride. He gets put in jail where we think something bad's about to happen to him. And then we are surprised because the warden calls him in and suddenly he's given all this preferential treatment because the warden says he's a Wadia man. Now, only on page 44 do we then see that name again when AJ meets Sunny Wadia. So, Dipti, let's talk about planting that kind of curiosity seed and leaving it hanging for 44 pages before the reader found out the significance of that name. So, I think I wanted to start with Ajay's story because it was very important that we see this world through his eyes and through his point of view. And it also kind of gives us a more generous view of the Vadias because you're seeing it through Ajay's eyes. And it was just like, uh, the mystery at the heart of this novel is this man who gets blamed for something he didn't do. And then he is almost treated like a common criminal there to be exploited by the system, by the police. But then suddenly he's like a Vadia man. Who is this? What does that mean? Who are these Vadias? Who are these powerful, shadowy people that who can give him that level of protection? So that was just intriguing because as a writer, you're also trying to create suspense and that was just I mean a, a lot of how I work is instinct I don't outline and plot so much and this time I think my instinct did work because it was just like we start with the car crash and then we see him getting some protection but how is he getting this protection and that's what I was also interested in later it's not so much the what's as the whys and the hows. How is, you know, why do these people behave like this? What kind of world do we live in that a society do we live in that enables this behavior? Why do all these good people make such terrible choices? Yeah, and in terms of what Dipti said there, it's so important because we say on the podcast all the time that writing is seduction. You have got to get your reader curious. You've got to get them asking questions, formulating their own theories, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And as emerging writers, we tend to get insecure and go, I can't make the reader wait 44 pages before they find out what the Wadia man is. But this is the perfect example of that because we wait for 44 pages. And when this man comes onto the page, we are like, holy shit. This is where the connection is, and it's amazing. It's a wonderful, wonderful payoff. Now, I also want to talk about 
the structure of the book. So it's split into three parts for our listeners. Part one, after the prologue, we go back in time to 1991 when AJ is just eight years old. It takes us beyond his arrest and beyond where the prologue begins. Part two is the female character in the story. She's a journalist, Neda, in 2006. So this is well past the arrest. Then we go back in time again to her kind of origin story. Then part three deals with Sunny, who is the warrior man, Neda, and Ajay's narratives. Now, you play around with form so much, Dipti. We have articles. We have emails. We have vignettes. We have some parts that read like a fever dream kind of poetry. So can you talk about the choices you made for that and the evolution, especially since you said you don't plot these things out beforehand? So I'm so interested in that process. So it was interesting because I think one of my intentions was you show the the glamour and the glitz and that luxury of that world in the beginning, at least. And in a way, um, you see it through Ajay's eyes and you think it's so seductive. It's like, wow, Ajay's seeing it with his big wide eyes and it's, it's this world that he wants to belong to, even if he's there as a servant, at least he's part of that world. And then also through Neta's eyes, it's also extremely seductive and alluring. And then I wanted to show how it, it collapses, it unravels. So that was really important because even as a journalist and as a person who experienced that in my 20s, I realized that that the luxury and glamour was built on a foundation of extreme inequality and suffering. But how to show that in your fiction? So it was also, I think, a decision that I made subconsciously as well, that as the book unfolded, the narrative started to crumble a bit in terms of also the writing style. And then you had all these changes. You had the email because Neda's writing, she's finally self-aware, she's full of guilt. She's talking about that world that she was part of and what led her to make those decisions. She's trying to justify those decisions, but you can see that there's not much justification. And then you have Sunny's world and Sunny's world is empty and callous and cruel. It's really hard to write that with the same romantic longing that you could show with Ajay. Because in the beginning, at least, Ajay's life is full of hope and he wants to do things. He wants to find his way, his way back to his mother, but he also wants to be part of this, this world. So, so that's, I guess, one of the reasons why it shifts, the narrative shifts, because the world starts to crumble and unravel. Right. And in terms of the writing process, especially since you don't plot, I myself am not a plotter and I write instinctively and I like to see where the characters are going to take me. One, how long did it take you to write this? And two, how close was were those early drafts to how we're seeing the novel now? Because so many novels are like puzzle pieces and the authors almost write them in this very linear way. And then afterwards they have to move all these puzzles around to get it into this form. But some writers just instinctively write it the way we end up seeing it. So I, I'm interested to know what that process looked like, especially considering you were experimenting so much with form. The beginning of the novel was something that came to me quite easily. Once I had fixed on the character of Ajay, I always had Nada and Sunny, but then when Ajay came, I was, that's when the novel really started to take shape. And later, the latter half was something that was a mystery <laughs> in the beginning. And that's something I worked on more later. So I was trying to figure out, as you said, the puzzle box analogy is pretty correct. I wrote it linearly. I mean, I wrote it in the way you read it. And the 
the Ajay section, it felt like I got it right at the start. The others were harder. Also fixing on Nether's character, trying to figure out how much she knew about Sunny's world and, and the Vadia Empire and the nefarious dealings. Or whether she's kind of like just a journalist who's very ambitious, who wants to break this story. And she gets close to Sunny for that reason. Or does she get close to Sunny because she just falls for him? So these little shifts in character, which then kind of determine the course of the story, the course of events and how it unfolds. And that was important because if you make Nether like a really ambitious journalist, she might not have been with Sunny in the car that night and might not have made that decision. And then once you fix on something, you just kind of decide, okay, this is how it's going to go. And, and that's so important because I think that once you know the character and you allow them to behave in a way that is organic to their motivations, the story is going to take you in places that feel organic. Whereas if you plot that all ahead of time without you knowing Neda that well as the writer, I feel like then her character gets informed by what you wanted the plot to be as opposed to allowing her character to just develop. Exactly, because I have this way of working where I I do plot, and I mean, I don't outline extensively, but I have an idea. But then very often the subconscious will intrude <laughs> in, into this, this writing life and then the characters will maybe, there'll be an action or a dialogue or a line of thinking. They will do something that I had not planned and then I have to accommodate everyone else. That's always a gift when that happens. It feels like this yeah. character is really revealing themselves whereas before they were maybe a bit reluctant to reveal themselves. And it, I, I guess it's also really important, as you said, that once you have a fix on the character, that they shouldn't be, then be doing something out of character. And you see that sometimes in uh, TV shows. It's like, they wouldn't do that. And, and you know that that's just a plot device. And, and that is, always feels artificial. That's one thing you have to guard against. It's so frustrating, especially when I'm loving a book and suddenly this character does something for the sake of the plot. Or like you say, a TV show, and you're like, that character would never, ever do that for X, Y, and Z reasons. So yeah, I agree with you there. I want to talk a bit about social commentary in novels. There were some startling moments here where that really stopped me in my tracks, made me think. And I feel like as authors, we write because we have something to say about the world. And we certainly don't want our viewpoints to be intrusive and we don't want our readers to feel like they're being lectured. But when it's done so, so well, that moves you and it makes you think. And I, I want to just refer to one spot here. So there's a part in the early part of the book where Sonny and his cohorts go to a restaurant and they're kind of rude and boisterous. They bring their own food in from another place to this restaurant. And there is a Spanish woman there who makes comments and says to them, it's very rude of them and their behavior is terrible and it's not in keeping with India, etc. And Sunny goes, and I just want to read this for our listeners. Sunny goes, Madam, he replies, don't tell us about our culture. We're not zoo animals for your pleasure, not the smiling native to accessorize your enlightenment. The simplicity and honesty you think you know is simply your eyes deceiving your brain. You see and hear nothing. And this guy, he says, pointing to the owner, doesn't give a fuck if we bring food from outside. We paid him for that privilege. If you could speak our language, you'd know this. If you knew our culture, you'd know respect is one currency. But at the end of the day, money talks. Finally, understand this one thing. India is our country, not yours. You are guests here. We are great hosts, but don't respect us in our own home. So can you speak a bit about, about that kind of social commentary that comes through? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. So I was really interested in exploring the the new India that emerged, I say, in the 90s and then in the wake of say a socialist economy and then you transitioned rapidly to a capitalist one and a kind of a new more confident Indian that came out of that as well and it's like we suddenly had this post-colonial baggage that maybe our parents lived with and at least the new rich and 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 these people are extremely privileged and come from powerful families they had a confidence and an audacity that was really interesting because they didn't need the west to tell them how to live and to tell them that you're doing what fine you know it was like we know we know we're good that was just an interesting thing and it was it was happening all around me at that point of time and now i think that feeling has solidified and it's become more confident the country and, and its idea of who who it is in itself but yeah it was just emerging at that period of time and i really wanted to put that scene in yeah it was it was incredibly powerful and then having said that i think control as a writer is so important there's times when you go okay i'm going to follow this thought and there's going to be social commentary and then there's times where you should hold back from that and here's a perfect example of that you made one sentence, Dipti, that I swear to God could have been a whole book in its own right. And as a writer, I always tend to overwrite because I want to expand on those things. But control is so important. So there's a part here that says, Daddy dies a few months later, his Mahindra Amada colliding with a local bus late one night on a blind corner on the road, 26 people perish. The driver was using an over-the-counter diet supplement as an amphetamine. The conductor was the same age as AJ. And that just stopped me in my tracks because, you know, it, it shows you that there are no real villains because you want to villainize the bus driver. But this poor man is keeping to this hectic schedule, has got to put in all these hours and he's having to take bloody amphetamines to keep him awake and he must be so exhausted and just that one line stopped me up short and like I say you could have written paragraphs about that in terms of what this means for class and privilege and these kinds of people who are exploited and have to work in these conditions but boom you just put it there as one line and you just move the hell on. Yeah I'm really glad you picked that one up because if you have ever been to India and driven um, some of these highways and roads, especially in the mountains, you have some crazy truck drivers and bus drivers. They're all driving after because they're driving for hours, and especially at late at night, like crazy, taking amphetamines. And you have a hell of a lot of traffic accidents as a result of this. But also the tragedy of their lives is that they're no villains here. It's just the way society is structured. I was in Delhi last week. I was going to Jaipur for this literature festival, literally on the on the highway, stopped at a gas station. And a young boy who would have been an Ajay's age stepped out from a truck on the passenger side and he was working. And you see them everywhere. These young men who have had to leave their homes, family homes, because they need to work and send money back to their families. And it's just this inescapable reality and tragedy that I wanted to highlight, while also, as you said before, I don't want to be this didactic novelist who's pushing a message. Yeah, that was just extreme control, and it then forced the, the reader to kind of do that work. So instead of the author doing the social commentary, the reader's left with the weight of this thing, 
And they've got to decide for themselves how they're going to deal with that and how they're going to think about it, which I really liked. And it shows that you trust your reader to do some of the heavy lifting as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Always trust my reader. (laughs) Something else I want to discuss is when you read, especially part one and part two, initially you kind of get lulled into the sense that it's third person close in -hmm. terms of points of view. And then when you're paying really close attention, you start to realize that it's actually omniscient. So I just want to give an example here for our listeners. This is um, with the J when he's with a group of other people in service. He becomes a part of them. He finds a sense of community. And it says, it never occurs to him to be part of them, to ask to be part of them. And it never occurs to them to ask it of him. They accept him as he is without malice or curiosity. He's the first to wake to before dawn. He doesn't want to risk disrupting the fortune of finding this place. Doesn't want to put his security at risk with irregular behavior. But there we get the perspective of these other people as well, not just Jay. And so can you give our listeners advice for when you adopt this kind of POV, especially with emerging writers, they tend to head hop. And they tend to constantly be in omniscient mode. But what you did so brilliantly is there were times that you zoomed in super, super close, third person close, and times where you just zoomed out a bit to give us omniscience and then went back into the third person close. I don't know how I did that. It just felt like the right thing to do. And I think it was just important for you're so closely involved in Ajay's world and his POV and then suddenly you need to zoom out and see where he is in this larger scheme and he's with these boys and he's always a bit apart from them but they're also his family and this is is interesting because I used to see these young I lived in Goa and for years and they have these shacks on the beach and they're all run by these sort of often by these groups of young men who've come from often from Nepal or other parts of India and and they become this very tight close-knit community they look after each other and and I wanted to show that that family but he's not still not part of it it was lovely because it just contextualized things and then we were back with him and it also helps to kind of stop the reader from feeling claustrophobic too much in in one character's perspective so when you did that and for our listeners when you read the book pay attention pay attention to when Dipti does that and when she withdraws and when she comes in super close again and have a look at the impression it creates with the reader because all of this needs to be done with control and it needs to be done for a reason like maybe Dipti like wasn't able to at that moment articulate it but certainly instinctively she as the writer knew exactly what was required there and certainly delivered it. My last question, Dipti, because we've run out of time, is this book was relentlessly, I don't want to say depressing, it just, it was, it was relentless in how difficult things were for these people, Ajay especially. My God, I wanted this man to have some happiness. I just, I just wanted something good for him, whether it was a girlfriend or something, and there wasn't. And then uh, there were some moments of levity. Eli brought some comic you know, comedic mm. relief to moments with Sonny because yeah. Eli had zero fucks left to give. He yeah. was just, he was, he was not yeah, taking yeah. the shit, man. And he was yeah. just giving it back. So was that a conscious decision at your part at that point to introduce some humor to yeah. just sort of bring it out a bit? Can you speak a bit about that? I was, I was totally aware of the fact that this world is tough, brutal, violent, and harsh. And, and it's harsh on the characters, but it's also harsh 
on the reader. And you need some levity. And Eli was, even if that levity is slightly ironic and like he's just looking at everything and saying, yeah, what the fuck? But I realized I love the character of Eli and I really wanted to introduce him to give some degree of comedy, not comedy. I mean, it does still skew to a very dark, darker side. But yeah, he was there for that reason. It allowed you to laugh in these mm. otherwise tense moments like a pressure valve. Dipti, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I could chat to you for hours. For our mm-hmm. listeners, get this book, study it. It is absolutely phenomenal. Thank you, Bianca. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you. I love all your questions. Thanks. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, We're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeCeLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. 
This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.